Welcome to another edition of Afikra's Book Club. Our special guest today is Jomana Haddad, who is an award-winning Lebanese author, journalist, and human rights activist. She was the culture editor at Nahad newspaper for many years and now hosts a TV show focusing on human rights issues in the Arab world. She's received the Blue Metropolis Arab Literary Prize and the Arab Press Prize, among many other uh, honors, and was named one of the world's uh, 100 most powerful Arab women for four years in a row by Arabian business. You might know her work from Superman is an Arab or I Kill Shahrazad, The Third Sex, and many of her other books. But today we are going to be talking about the book of Queens. Jomana, welcome to Africa Book Club. Thank you so much. I'm honored and so happy to uh, to participate. And I can't wait for your questions. Yeah, I'm excited as well. Um, you know, I... <clears throat> I want to start talking just briefly about the first couple of sentences, the first couple of words I read in your bio, which is you are an author and a journalist. Um, and some people only know you, at least in Lebanon, they only know you as a journalist. Uh, very prominently, you know, and HUD is one of the, the leading newspapers in, in the country, and they know you very prominently as that. Um, when you think about yourself, do you think about yourself in that order, author, journalist, activist? Um, or is it, is there a different hierarchy? That's quite an interesting question. I would say, yeah, but even before author, poet, and then author, and then activist, I guess, and then journalist. <laughs> not because I, I mean, not because journalism is, uh, I mean, the least in my, in my uh, uh, list of interests, but because I, I started it not out of passion necessarily, but out of um, having to do some kind of work in order to survive. Because as an author, as a poet, I could not, especially in the Arab world, I could not uh, conceive being able to become uh, self-sufficient financially, just relying on my books and, and my poetry. So I came to it um, uh, just in order to be um, doing something that is that involves words because this is my main uh, I would say uh, weapon uh, in life uh, but um, that would allow me um, a certain uh, financial stability but once I started doing it and I was lucky enough to be working in a field that was also in a field of journalism that is also also very close to my own interests um, at Amnahar for 20 years. It was the cultural page. And now as a TV host, it's a show about human rights. Uh, uh, when I started, I became quite um, passionate about it and excited about it. But it wasn't like that in the beginning. Ever since I was a little girl, I I mean, I always uh, thought of myself as, as a writer and as an astronaut for, for a brief period of time. Then I realized how how much I sucked at math and physics so I had to let go of that dream yeah uh, my mom broke me uh, broke the news to me when I was 10 years old that I wasn't going to be six foot ten and I wasn't going to be become a professional basketball player it was a heartbreaking, heartbreaking <laughs> yeah. moment for me. we all go through that some way yeah. or another <laughs> um so I want to jump right into the book um because I have so many questions about this uh the book of queens and um, the first question I have is, 
You know, most people ask this question to authors, who is this book for? Um, but this is, it's, it's historical fiction, but it is clearly part memoir. And it's very much you sort of thinking through the story of your family and sort of uh, the tragic elements and the resilient elements of your family. Um, but would you, if you were not a published author, if Simon and Schuster and Interlink wouldn't have come to you and said, we're going to publish this, did you have to write this book just for yourself, essentially? I did. I actually did need to write that book eventually. And I believe that um, I, I, I mean, I would go even further. I've started writing um, or I felt the need to write in order to be able to write this book in particular one day, once I was uh, ready to do that, because it's it wasn't an easy confrontation. It wasn't an easy book to write. So, um, uh, I mean, the first part of your question, the one you didn't ask me, uh, who did who is this book for? I was about to say, had you asked me the question, this book is for me. First and foremost, I needed to uh, to write it. I needed to not in order to liberate myself from the story or the stories in plural um, that I had uh, inside and that were and still are weighing on my identity and my vision of life and the way I express myself and the way I do things, but also. And, and mainly because I didn't actually liberate myself of those because I needed to put it down on paper in order for it to um, not be um, just part of my own um my own um, imagination and and memory i needed to share it with others so um uh, in order to explain myself better and in order to explain why it was so hard to uh, to write this book but also so vital and necessary for me um i mean you said historical fiction but it is it is bio biographical as well because it was about uh, the story of my grandmother, my my Armenian grandmother, who uh, had survived uh, the genocide in 1915. She was just three years old at the time. Um, and then many, many years later, many hardships later and uh, a life full of um, challenges and also, I guess, uh, beautiful experiences later. Um, when I was seven years old, she committed suicide. And I was, um, I've always, um, I mean, that was my introduction uh, to both death and suicide, uh, which are two um, quite, um, let's say, thorny, uh, thorny um, things to think about for a seven-year-old. I mean, even if I was living the war in Beirut at the time, I was. It started when I was five years old. Um, I hadn't seen death in the face, and here I was uh, having to face. Uh, what death meant, but also what uh, self 
administered death meant. And I had um, obsessed about her and about uh, that decision that she took all of my life. And I had dealt with suicide also before this book, but um, in a form of an anthology that I did, a huge anthology of 700 pages about poets who committed suicide. Um, but I always knew I had to uh, tell her story. And it wasn't easy because uh, suicide is a taboo um, still, unfortunately, I, I guess not only in Lebanon and in the Arab world, but in many other parts of the world. And, and my mom and my uncles and aunts didn't want to talk about it. So I had to do my own homework and I also had to uh, put my imagination at test in order to complete the pieces of the puzzle because I didn't just want to tell her story. Her story was just a prototype of many uh, stories of suffering and loss. It's almost like, it's like an untellable story um, internally. And so in some ways you sort of fictionalize, you have to fictionalize in order to fill in those gaps um, that are unknowable and untellable. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite comedians and uh, wrote a book and uh, it's, it's fiction, but he says uh, he says it's fiction, but it's true. Um, and uh, that's, that's what I, that's how I, I sort of uh, felt how I felt about this book. I want to read just the the little paragraph about the book for those people who are unfamiliar. <clears throat> it says the book, uh, the book of Queens is a family saga that spans four generations of women caught up in the tragic whirlwind of turf wars and suffering in the Middle East from the Armenian genocide and the Israeli occupation of Palestine to modern day civil wars and the struggles between Christians and Muslims in Lebanon and Syria. Four Queens of of four queens of a deck of cards dealt a bad hand by fate. Um, and I want to actually have you read these four women's names because they're names that, except the last one, are I'm unfamiliar with. So tell me who these women are and uh, how you arrived upon these names. Okay, so um, the first woman, the, gr the great-grandmother is Kaya. Uh, then um, I skip a generation and I um, the next chapter is about Kano, the mother. Uh, Qatar is the, um, uh, I mean, Kana is the, sorry, the, the, the granddaughter. Qadar is the mother and Kamar is the great granddaughter. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, these weren't the names at the start of the, of the writing process. You know, it's, it's so interesting. The other day I was just looking into my archive, um, and, um, uh, and I saw a very early draft of the book. First of all, it was just about, my grandmother. It's it's it was just about the Armenian genocide. That's how I started it. I didn't have um, uh, this um, structure in my mind about writing the four women and the four stories. It was just her story. And then while I was writing, I felt like uh, she must have uh, gave as an inheritance um, so much pain, but also life and joy to uh, her own daughter. And her own daughter had experienced another 
tragedy and so on and so forth. This is how the four women came came to be. Uh, but then uh, also the the structure with the four queens wasn't wasn't in the beginning. Actually, the four names that start with Q were the result of when I had the idea of using uh, the four queens of the um, uh, uh, cards uh, as as a um, let's say a metaphor or a symbol of each of each one of these women um and the reason behind that was that i remembered one day um while i was i mean in the process of writing and and maybe we can talk about that because i don't write every day when i'm writing a book it's very intense and then i stop for long periods of time but when i'm writing a book it's all i can think about it's all i can do i stop everything else and it's it's uh, a miracle how I can still be functioning as a human being when I'm when I'm in the, in the writing period. So I remembered because I was delving deep into my childhood how during the war, uh, when we used to run and sit in shelters, the war, the civil war in Lebanon, I mean, uh, many of my uh, many of many neighbors and families and my own parents used to play cards in order to pass time, you know, just talk about politics, play cards, stuff like that. And I used to watch that game. They used to um, um, uh, to play a, a game called Tarnib. Yeah. Uh, and it's always, I remember how much I uh, was um, frustrated and sometimes even furious that the king and the deck of cards uh, uh, would beat the queen. And I wouldn't understand. It was such a, even before, I mean, I was a kid. It wasn't just a, uh, a post-feminist realization of uh, how patriarchy works and why does the king beat the queen and stuff like that. It was just, I mean, why is it so? They should be the same. And so when I was, um, uh, when I remembered that story, I realized there are four queens beaten by the kings of this world. And not necessarily when I say kings, it's not just, uh, uh, I'm not talking about men, I'm talking about the whole patriarchal system, patriarchy, yeah. whatever it, uh, it represents, and whatever damage it does to, to our lives. And this is how the idea of each one of them uh, being one of these four queens. And then I uh, made up a character for each queen of the deck of cards that was uh, in tune with the character of, of, of um, one of the four heroines of the story. Amazing. So um, thanks for the background. I also, I wonder what the ace is in that case. <laughs> Maybe the aces of patriarchy. Uh, I see them as I see them as one and not as stronger than than the king. So it depends. Yeah. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're the strongest. So, yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you an unanswerable question. But let's say you have a um, um, let's say you have a, some teenager in your life that says, "Jamana, you're writing a book about the Armenian genocide." Type. Uh, what happened exactly? What happened in the Armenian genocide? Um, and if you have to explain this as simply as possible um, to a teenager who knows Lebanon, knows Beirut, knows Syria, knows these places, has heard of Armenia, and is like, what happened? 
Okay, so um, um, if this teenager, um, I mean, is familiar with the uh, geographical and historical background, more or less, of the the, the region that we live in, uh, they would know that um, we had the Ottoman Empire rule uh, uh, this this part of the world at at one point and many other parts as well, and um, there were uh, in what is known now as Turkey or Turkish cities like Aintab, like Mardin, like other cities, there were Armenian and other Christian um, uh, minorities living there and thriving there. And at one point in 1915, um, uh, the uh, Ottomans uh, decided to uh, kick out, uh, to slaughter and kick out um, the Armenians mainly, but also other um, uh, Christian communities. And um, if you think about it, it's so uh, absurd and maddening that uh, more than a hundred years later, a hundred and, and uh, uh, um, eight years later, the same is still happening in different parts of the world. Same kinds of wars motivated by uh, whether religion or race or any other um, piece of identity or difference that we didn't even choose. I mean, I didn't choose to be born in Lebanon to a, a father from uh, the South who has roots in Palestine and to a mother whose mother is from Aintab and whose grandfather is from uh, Mardin and all this mixture that makes me who I am. I didn't choose it. And each one of us, none of us chose their name, their background, their nationality, their religion, etc., etc. But still, many times in, 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 in many instances in our lives, in one form or another, we are punished because of that. We are punished because we're um, uh, Muslim. We are punished because we're Christian. We are punished because we're women. We are punished because we're gay. We are punished for things that are just part of our nature and that we were born with, that we didn't choose in order to at least say, okay, I'm punished, but I'm responsible for for that, so I I should accept the weight and the uh, the consequences of that choice I made, of that decision I made. We can't. So we're just completely uh, unarmed, and and uh, um, and we we pay the price of those um, uh, of that inheritance that uh, that we have carried. And this is what happened to my grandmother and to my grandfather as well, who was a Syriani, a Syriac, I guess you say in in English. I'm not yeah. sure. I think yeah. it's Assyriac. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, who was born in Mardin. And this is how their whole life, they had to pay the price of who they were without having decided uh, to be who they were. And this is what happened in 1915. And more than a million people perished um, uh, during that genocide. And um, uh, hundreds of thousands of others um, uh, got um, uh, kicked out of their homeland, of their homes. Um, many went to Aleppo, but also from there to uh, other countries. There's the big uh, Armenian diaspora everywhere in the world, whether in the United States or in different parts of the Arab world or in Europe. Um, and it's um, 
it's a story of, uh, I mean, their story. It's a story of um, such arbitrary violence and injustice. I mean, I know that violence um, and injustice is almost always arbitrary, but this is really. I mean, I'm 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 seeing yeah. the the photos that you're showing, and uh, every time I see those photos, it still breaks my heart as if it was the first time and it's the same reaction that i have whenever now i see like for example uh photos uh, or, or videos of of syrian refugees or of of the atrocities that are still happening in palestine or in many other or what's happening in iran for example or many other parts of the world it's the same reaction it becomes i mean this kind of pain once you've you've gone through it becomes personal even when it's someone else's pain that you're watching it becomes you become uh, um um automatically uh, um i mean it becomes yours you become empathetic and compassionate and you feel it in your own flesh and blood even if it's about someone else yeah can you give us a scale? I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but um, I wonder if you still remember some of these numbers. Can you give us a scale of what, uh, you know, um, the size of the atrocities, um, just so that we can sort of get a sense of um, the number of people who had to move and lost lives and were uh, placed in refugee camps. Do you remember these uh, these uh, sort of details? Well, not not in a very scientific manner, but I do know that more than a million people were uh, were killed, were slaughtered, oh and um, obviously, I mean, some people say even two million, uh, and uh, and um, millions of, of of others were, you know, just uh, dispersed all over the world. So um, it was quite huge. Um, I know that there are still a few very small Armenian community in in Turkey um, or what is known today as Turkey, but um, it's it's a very um, um, small group of Armenians. Before you started writing this book, did you did you know this history inside and out? Because my sense is that um, most most teenagers. Um, in Lebanon right now, for example, just because I'm only using Lebanon because both you and I are in Lebanon right now. Um, I would imagine that most teenagers don't really know the history and know how their personal history is actually tied to this um, history. So before you started writing the, this book, were you intimately aware of the stories and of the the sort of the nuances of what happened? Definitely, yes, the stories, because I grew up in the Armenian ghetto uh, in, in a place called Bush Hamoud uh, um, in Beirut. So I was surrounded with Armenians and I used to hear the stories and I used to see the tattoos. Many had tattoos and marks on their hands. Um, and I used to ask questions um, to who, whoever was willing to, to answer me. Plus, when my when my grandmother committed suicide, I asked my mother to teach me Armenian. I wanted to speak the language. And she did. And I, I speak it fluently. So it also enabled me uh, to discover and to hear things that wouldn't necessarily be available to um, maybe descendants of of uh, of armenians who are not um uh who do not speak the language anymore and there are many of those 
uh, unfortunately today. So uh, yes, I did, but not necessarily all the nuances. I mean, I knew the stories, but not the nuances. And it is only when I, uh, uh, I mean, Obviously, in different parts of my life, I became more aware and more educated about it. But when I started to write the book, and because there were so many gaps to that I had to fill, that's when I um, I, I learned more and I learned uh, 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 at a deeper level uh, uh, about the things that happened during that period. Okay, I want to get into the book a little bit. Um... You said you 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 write these books in like spurts. Um, did you essentially write it chronologically? I did write it chronologically, as it is in the book, but not chronologically because if you if you yeah no I, uh, I mean page by page, not chronologically because you go I back did. and forth. I yeah. did. I started with my grandmother, and then I uh, I decided, or with the with the let's say the generation of my grandmother, mm-hmm. and then I I uh, skipped a generation, and then I came back. So it was the same the same as it was in the book, uh, but um, uh, very. Very soon, I mean, when I started writing and I delved into the first chapter of the four, um, I realized that, um, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, that there are more stories to tell about uh, what uh, this generation has given to the generation after it and then to the generation after it. And then uh, um, uh, when, when I started writing, it was... Uh, quite um, at the height of what was happening in Syria. And it was unbelievable that we were still caught in that vicious cycle of violence, of death, of hatred, of uh, refusal of the other, of extremism, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought this is, this is I'm starting this, but it, it needs to end in, in our present time. So uh, yeah, I did write it chronologically as it is um, in the book. Uh, um, but I didn't know how it was going to end. And the ending was a surprise even to me. I mean, I only uh, came up with the ending a few days before I uh, wrote uh, the last pages of the book. And I like that, actually. I was yeah. always... Let's remember that this is my first novel. I mean, I, I've it's my 15th book, uh, but it's my first novel. I've written lots of poetry, of um, uh, nonfiction before. I've written plays. Um, I've written children's books, but I hadn't written actually uh, any novel. And this was my first novel. So I was like also discovering whether or not uh, this is a genre that could work. Uh, for me, I always had this idea that I was too impatient to write a novel. And maybe I am, but I had to push myself because I needed to get all those things out and be able to look at them and read them and not just think about them and deal with them from the inside perspective. So, um, yeah, now I'm writing um, uh, a new novel and uh, it's also um, a struggle because I wanted to. I want. I want. I want it to be done. I want it to be finished, and I have to uh, force myself to respect the pace of the words, the pace of um, my own imagination, and just let go and not necessarily control every minute of the process. Yeah, I want to talk about your new novel at the end of the this conversation. Um, 
But before we do, did you feel like you sort of exercised some of your demons by the end of it? Was there a sense of a relief or a sort of a sense of depression? Um, because it's such a heavy, it, I mean, you know, it, it's such a heavy idea. Essentially, you're, you're spanning, you know, a century almost. And, and, and it's, you know, it's a century of catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe after heartbreak nope. after heartbreak. Um, and, you know, there's this quote in the book, memories are like morgues, endless rows of drawers that we continue, that we sometimes reopen to check up on our dead, right? Yeah. An endless row of drawers. And it's almost like it's, it's you are exploring the endlessness of the catastrophe and the heartbreak of of life in this region. Um, and so I wonder if at the end of it, you thought, okay, all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is just going to be an endless uh, row of drawers going forward. And if I wrote this book a hundred years later, it would be a 200 year book. Yeah. Um, or was there a sense of relief? Like, Khalas, I exercise these demons and I can move on. Honestly, no, there was no exorcism. The demons are still there. Um, I don't believe necessarily in this idea that once we write, we liberate ourselves from, from whatever pain or um, tough memories uh, or experiences that we hold inside. But on the other hand, there is some kind of relief that you find in the act of sharing that pain with others. I mean, the demons are still there, but the fact that you've opened your, um, your inside and showed other people those demons, uh, pointed your finger at them, uh, named your pain, gives you a certain sense of relief momentarily and and not necessarily all the time but the pain is still there and i got to tell you i'm not someone who's necessarily optimistic i'm a very um joyful and cheerful and playful person but i'm also quite a depressed person uh in 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 by nature and also health health wise and i do believe that i mean if you if it depends on how you look at it but life is not um is not that uh, that happy experience after all you have a few moments of good times every now and then and you cherish them of course but there's a lot of pain and suffering and um i mean maybe this is why uh, i mean we have kids rather early uh in 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 our lives i did have both my kids very early in my life because if i had to take that decision like at 40 years old or 38 maybe i would rethink it and not decide to uh, impose this kind of suffering on another person because actually what we do when we take the decision of having kids is impose whatever life is going to be on someone who didn't decide to be born. So it's quite a, quite a big responsibility that we hold as parents. And I keep thinking about that. Yes, it is endless uh, rows of, of, of drawers and a morgue, maybe not necessarily dead in the physical sense, but also loss and pain and, and um, uh, uh, 
lost, uh, not just people, but also or loved ones, lost opportunities, lost uh, experiences. So it's it's uh, it's a living is heavy. Living is heavy in itself, and having to write about it is obviously heavy. And this is why maybe I write in spurs uh, because I'm not always well equipped and and uh to, in order to do that kind of converse, confrontation it always needs um uh needs for me to reassemble my courage and my guts and my insolence and my um uh, thinking i don't care i'm gonna do that in order to be able to sit down and do it and i keep postponing and postponing and postponing until the moment of actually doing it becomes inescapable and this is what happened with this book but it also happens with all my books i just keep running away from this because it's hard and because i never write if not from a very individual experience or uh, or or uh, spot, it's always very personal. Everything I write is very personal. So it's uh, it's not like I'm writing. I'm, I'm inventing something that uh, I have a sense of detachment from. Even when I'm inventing, it's very personal. One of the um... Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I can't imagine it's very, you know, it's so tied to the stuff that we talked about with um, the experience of, uh, you know, at the age of seven, seeing somebody you love in your family um, yeah, uh, do something so, so tragic to themselves. I can't imagine that that's a shadow that, um, that ever really goes away. So I can, I imagine that that's super, super heavy. Um I want to ask you a question. Um, in Afikra, in our world here, every now and then we get people who have the sense of Arab exceptionalism, right? And they're so excited that we are, that as Afikra, we're celebrating amazing quote unquote Arab stories and how amazing Arabs are and everything is uh, um, how amazing that this group of people is. And that's not what we're doing. Afikra is not about. Uh, any specific group of people. It's about this region that some people call the Arab world, um, which includes so many different types of people and so many different types of cultures. And um, and this book is one of the first, is the first book um, that we've had on book club that is about Armenians, um, which at least in the Levant play a huge part of shaping the histories and the cultures of the last, you know, few centuries, um, uh, if not more. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious, let me ask you the question as straightforward as I can. Why aren't there more books about Armenian stories um, from this part of the world? I'm sorry, it's, uh, it's, it skipped a word or two. Can you repeat the question, please? Yeah, of course. Why aren't there more st- stories about um, Armenians from this part of the world. Ah, okay. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I always wonder about that as well. Um, but it's really, I mean, when you were talking about uh, Arab exceptionalism, I felt provoked, honestly, because I don't believe in that. I don't yeah. believe in exceptionalism of any kind of people, honestly. Uh, I believe in, in, in the exceptional nature of 
each and every human being. We're all unique and exceptional, but there isn't something called Arab exceptionalism. And um, and I, do, I don't know if it's um, the problem of the language regarding Armenians, because it's, it's a small community after all. And um, I know there are amazing books by, by Armenian Americans uh, who have written about this. There are even also amazing movies uh, about this. But it's true that um, in Lebanon, there aren't, or in the Arab world, there aren't, uh, to my knowledge, um, many, many books that have been written about this. Maybe it was because um, uh, whether the Armenians or the Arabs, each in their uh, own way, uh, wanted to be absorbed or accepted or wanted to absorb and and accept uh, this uh, what what is considered um, um, uh different element in the community. I know that uh, um, it's it's uh, in, in the case of Lebanon, until now, I know many um, Armenians who say, for example, about Lebanese, bint Arab, which means that they don't consider themselves 100% Lebanese. There's a different, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's a nuance there. And Vice versa. Also, um, the Arabs or the Lebanese say he's Armenian as into pinpoint that they're not 100 percent Lebanese. To me, I think that uh, we are 100 percent Lebanese because, I mean, we're all a mixture. We're all hybrids, each and every one of us. Um, but uh, I do understand uh, something that the Armenians are are blamed for usually, for example, in Lebanon, and it's that they are uh, they 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 stick together and they form um, a more or less um, uh, um, protected community. I mean, it's because they need to. Um, uphold their language, their culture, their own story, um, their own uh, um, experiences. And I understand that. And we should all accept it. I mean, we should celebrate these different elements in each and every communities instead of wanting to uh, turn everything into uh, uh, into a homogeneous um, shade. Um, obviously, also, on the other hand, uh, we have a problem with that in Lebanon in, in, in that we are not Lebanese, not even those who are 100% if that exists. Lebanese aren't Lebanese because before being Lebanese, they are Christians, Catholics, uh, Shias, uh, Sunnis, Druze. Uh, and this is, this is our tragedy in Lebanon in that we do not have this um, uh, sense of belonging to uh, uh, one culture. It could be a source of, uh, of, richness and variety, but unfortunately, it's first and foremost, in our case, uh, a cause of division and, and hatred and uh, um, inability to, to be united as, as a people. And uh, it's sad. It's sad. Yeah. I mean, when I think about Lebanon, it's just, uh, uh, it's, it's a mess. What can I say? Yeah. Um how was this book received? Uh, you know, it deals with a subject that we don't typically hear about. What has the reception been so far from um, 
the sort of the broader public? Actually, it's been it's been amazing. I mean, um, uh, lots of people, lots of readers have told me that they loved it, but they told me that it was a, a tough read, and I understand that. I understand that. Um, uh, when 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 a reader tells me that she or he had to put down the book and try to breathe for a few days before uh, before to, before uh, uh, reading more, I understand that because I had to deal with it myself, and I actually didn't know how it would be received while I was writing it because it was like you said um, a bit earlier. There's no break. It's, just loss after loss after loss suffering after suffering and but this is this is how it is and at one point in the book i wonder if it's possible for one person to experience all all that uh all that pain but the answer is yes it's possible and even more unfortunately so it was very well received and it's it's one of the reasons that uh, have um, empowered and encouraged me to write more fiction because, um, like I said, it's I wasn't necessarily um, conceiving myself uh, as someone who can as a writer who can write uh, fiction or novels, but it turns out I can. So I really um, uh, found uh, in, in the reactions and the positive reactions to it, um, uh, the strength to and the inspiration to, to, to keep on trying to do that. Um, um, not because Nonfiction is not important. Now, for example, I'm writing two separate books. One is fiction in English and one is nonfiction in Arabic. But because I enjoyed while writing it, um, um, I enjoyed um, the discovery of my ability to invent things while also um, discovering things in myself and in my own family and in my own story, but you have to invent. And I didn't think I was able of doing that. And it turns out, uh, it's, um, it's, it's enthralling because, um, sometimes we, uh, we, we say or think or write things and we think, Who's going to believe that? But then people believe it. And it's the same uh, whenever I'm reading a book, a book of fiction. I, I always receive that book of fiction as absolute truth, as if it's something that has actually happened. I, I'm never reminded um, or remind myself while I'm reading that this is fiction. And this is how literature should be received because like yeah. many writers have said and many readers have said it's um, um it's uh, it 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 surpasses fiction many times it surpasses invention our own inventions in literature surpass life i mean this is what i wanted to say yeah yeah for sure i mean it's but the ability for it to be believable speaks to your your work and your challenge as an author, which is to to make it internally consistent and and to make the characters emotionally believable and have the depth um, to actually think that this is this is a believable story. This is actually integrates with um, with the truth. You know, um, did you like specific characters more than others? Did you like spending time with specific characters more than others? 
Um, no, no. Um, I had reasons to like and dislike all four of them. Actually, um, I uh, talking about the four women. Yeah. Um, maybe also maybe dislike is not the word, but uh, but distance myself from them. I had reasons to to be crazy about them, but also to uh, sometimes to judge them or uh, or uh, uh, admonish them uh, equally while I was creating them. So um, n- no, but the least the least favorite is the character um, uh, that represents my own generation. Maybe because we're always more uh, tougher towards ourselves than we are with other uh, with other people. So she yeah. was my least favorite. Did people in your family come and interrogate you, <laughs> saying, "I didn't do that. Why did you?" <laughs> <laughs> no, Why did they, you say no, I did that? <laughs> no, because because uh, I mean they are used to who I am, and they're always worried. Like for example, even in my nonfiction books, I it, it's more more testimonies than nonfiction. Even in my essays, they're always testimonies. I always draw uh, the inspiration from my own life, from my own experiences. And the funny thing is, uh, after this book came out, my brother, uh, I have just one brother, and he told me, if the next book is about me, I'm going to kill you because this is <laughs> this is what's left. So please don't come anywhere near me because I don't want to find myself in one of your books. So they're used to me and uh, they know that that uh, one of my most favorite challenges when I'm writing is how transparent and genuine I can be. This is what I enjoy the most about this confrontation. And this is why also I keep running away from it because it's so hard to to just get naked down to your core and and write. But this is what writing is to me. If I'm not like that, I don't want to write. I'm not interested in it. Yeah. Do you... um... Do you choose the language uh, that a book is written in? You just mentioned that you're writing one book in Arabic and one writing in English. Do you choose the language based off the audience you want to read it? Um, or do you choose it based off the emotion you use to express it? Uh, neither the first nor the second. I don't choose. Uh, it's very weird, my experience with languages. I've written books in five different languages. Um, I speak seven, but I cannot write in two of them. Uh, uh, and in it, it's always been um, uh, a matter of uh, the idea of the book comes in a particular language and I just... Uh, abandon myself to it and I started doing it in that language like after um, after uh, the book of Queens I've written a novel in Arabic uh, called victim number 232 about the port explosion in Beirut now I'm writing a novel in English and I'm writing a non-fiction book um, essays about feminism in Arabic so it's um, I've written a children's book in Italian a poetry book in Spanish uh, an erotic book in French so it's just a matter of um, I mean I think that it's um, it's clear now uh, from what I've said so far how much writing to me is a, is a group of challenges that I have to face, and one of these yeah. challenges is the language that I'm um, I'm expressing myself um, with. It's um, it's it's another challenge to be able to explore yourself in in a language that is not necessarily your own that you didn't grow up with, but I make it my own. 
own. And it also brings out words and ideas and images that are not necessarily available in, in another language. So it brings out a side of me as a writer that is not expressible or expressed in, in another language. So it's I just let go. It's It comes in, in English, I write it in English. It comes in French, I write it in French. And regarding the audience, I never think about that because whatever the language I choose, my main audience is, is um, uh, the Arab world and Arabic. So whenever I write a book in English, for example, I make sure that it's published in Arabic the same time it's published in English. Mm. It's not, uh, because you know why I say that? Because many times, especially in the beginning, um, people think that uh, a writer is running away from his own native language in order not to say things that might feel difficult to say in his or her own language and easier to express in a language with which you have a certain distance. And it's not the case with me. It's always, um, um, it's very arbitrary, the choice of the language, and it's always published in Arabic as well as in, in, in other languages. So for those listening to the podcast who can't see the screen, I have a screenshot on on the of one of the, um, an excerpt, and it says, Beirut, uh, Tuesday, November 10th, 1970, poverty is a soul breaker, poverty is a soul breaker, and then in all caps, poverty is a soul breaker. Um, and it reminds me to something that you said earlier on, uh, you were alluding to the neighborhood you grew up, Bush Hamoud, um, and you, you described it as a ghetto. Um, I've never heard anyone describe Burj Hamoud as a ghetto. Really? Um, yeah. And I'm curious, uh, what are your memories of that neighborhood um, in the early 70s and going into the war? Um, you know, that's, uh, I'd love to hear what that uh, neighborhood felt like at that time in your childhood. Um, yeah, well, a lot of poverty. Um I am from a, from a very um, modest, even poor family. I grew up in in these circumstances, but fortunately, what uh, what made a difference in my life is that my parents um, gave uh, our education, mine and my brothers. Um, a huge importance and did everything in order for us to realize how important it was to be educated in order to um, emancipate ourselves uh, um, at least to the minimum from uh, from such conditions that can be uh, tough uh, and can break your soul. But I was surrounded with people who were like us and it's obviously to various degrees because there's always worse and there's always better. And I know how, um, from especially from my mom's um, ordeals, um, in order to provide us with everything we needed, um, and um, and everything we had to have, I know how um, uh, how difficult it is sometimes to have to uh, um, break. Uh, your or or challenge your self esteem. I remember one thing in particular, which I'm gonna I'm gonna tell. Um, I remember that, for example, I was in a, a school run by nuns, mm. 
And I remember that they made me, I was like maybe five or six years old because my parents didn't pay the tuition on time. They singled me out um, and made me leave the class and sit on the stairs because uh, my parents hadn't paid uh, the tuition. This is something that you have to, uh, I I cannot forget something like that, even if it was I mean, a very early memory. I cannot forget that um, my mom wanted, and I've written about this. I mean, I I think I I tell that story in the book as well, how she badly desired a dress and and a shop window. And I could see in her eyes how much she wanted it, but she wouldn't buy it because she had to uh, buy more necessary stuff for us, her kids. Um, I remember how one day I saw her kneeling in front of uh, my my brother's um, uh, school director in order for him to uh, give her, um, 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 how do you say, um, a discount on the tuition because she wanted to uh, uh, keep my brother in that excellent school and she didn't want, you know, so these are things that form you as a human being, even when you reach a point uh, when uh, where you're, you're living a comfortable life, uh, you cannot forget these things and they form you and they shape you and they shape the way you look at others and they shape the way you look at things. Um, and I'm grateful. I know it's a cliche to say that, but I'm grateful for those experiences since I'm grateful I went through them and sometimes I uh I worry because because I went through that I uh, insisted so much on not uh, allowing my two sons I have a 30 year old son and a 23 year old son on not having my two sons be exposed to any form of uh worry on that front when they were kids and even now. And I worry because they didn't worry. Because the fact that I worried when I was young has um, given me a form of immunity, but also a certain kind of strength um, to face life and its adversities in a way that maybe they're not equipped for. And I worry about that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Um, But yeah. Thanks for sharing. It's really, really tough uh, to to imagine um, what that what that's like. But I really appreciate uh, the clarity. I want to ask before we wrap up. We only have a few more minutes to talk a little bit about um, victim number two three two, which is I believe coming out in July, um, or it just came out, or it's coming out soon. It came out in July in, in Arabic. July. And now it's being translated to to English. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that book. So um, um, this is also a beautiful writing story, Uh, not the story of the book, but the story of the writing itself, because um, uh, during the um, uh, when before, right before the revolution, the October uh, uh, 17th revolution uh, started in Lebanon and on October 17, uh, 2019, I had started writing a book about a main character uh, who's a trans woman. 
called Hinnid, uh, who was born Abbas, uh, and she's from a southern uh, family. Um, and uh, I had been writing the book for uh, or thinking about thinking about the main character uh, for quite some time, and I had and I started writing the parts of the book, and then the explosion on four August twenty twenty happened. Um, and uh, um, obviously, like each and every other person in Beirut, I had to stop everything. Our lives were paused and uh, we barely made it. I live like 200 meters away from the port. Um, fortunately, I didn't personally um, get physically hurt uh, or lose a loved one. And this is to say how um, trying it has been and it still is for those who did lose loved ones um, in that in that tragedy, in that crime. Um, but I had to um, help others. You know, we all went to the streets, helping each other, cleaning the houses, cleaning the streets, et cetera, et cetera. And then six months later, when the dust, more or less, uh, whether the literal dust or the, uh, 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 I mean, the moral uh, and and psychological dust started to settle down. I decided to uh, get back to um, uh, writing the book, and I couldn't. I couldn't. It's. I did everything I could. I couldn't get back to writing the book, uh, and then I took a two week, two months residency in France, uh, writing residency in order to finish it, and I couldn't. And while in France. I realized that uh, the main character was another victim of the port explosion because she died. She died on me. My main character, the main character of the book, died on me. And it was um, quite a coincidence because she uh, lived in Carantina. And Carantina was actually, in truth, one of the uh, places that were most affected by the explosion because it faces the Beirut port. So I decided to just let go of Hinnit. I, I I wrote just uh, a conclusion for the book, a final chapter where I tell the story of the writing and how I uh, as well have lost uh, someone in that explosion. It wasn't a real person. It was a fictional character, but I still felt the loss. And I named it victim number 232 because by that time we had 231 um, uh, victims uh, of the explosion. And then I was telling my, my publisher was asking me what I was working on. And I told him that I was about to start a new book because that one is, I didn't think I would publish it, but I wanted to get to get my closure with it. And this is why I, I wrote the uh, the conclusion. And he told me, let's, let's publish it as it is, as an incomplete book, as a novel interrupted by the explosion. And this is what we did. And it tells the story of the explosion in an indirect way, because it was never written to be about the explosion, but the explosion interfered with it. And, uh, this is the story of the book. How powerful. Um, uh, it's almost, I almost, uh, I almost wish the name of the book wasn't victim two, three, two, um, just because it sort of spoils, um, the, the narrative that you just, you just explained to me, which is like, you're reading this, this story of, you know, of, aspirations and hopes and dreams and, uh, and unresolved questions. And then, um, you know, at 637, yeah. um, everything changes. Um, 
Jamana, we are out of time. I could talk to you for a really long time and I hope we have another uh, follow-up to this conversation. Um, For all of you listening, it's easy to find Jamana online, uh, uh, Jay Haddad official on uh, Instagram, and you can look up the JH Freedom Center as well. Um, Jamana, thanks so much for joining us. It was a real privilege to be able to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.